Welcome to the Feeding Humans podcast, where we talk about the joys and challenges of nourishing ourselves and the kids we love in spirit, mind, and body. For many of us, the struggle with food and feeding is real every day and can be a source of constant frustration. But understanding the countless ways the human experience influences how we relate to food, how we parent, and how we feed our families can help us see these struggles in a new light. And since our kids are human too, it helps explain their sometimes maddening responses. I'm your host, Katherine Zavodny, registered dietitian, eating disorder specialist, family feeding expert, and fellow human. I'm so glad you joined me today. Hi there, and welcome to episode three of the Feeding Humans podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about sweets and kids and how to navigate issues around sugar and sweets in your family. But before we do that, I want to follow up on our last episode, uh, which was about uh, feeding dynamics and the division of responsibility and just kind of a, a primer on how to apply that feeding framework in your family. We talked for quite a bit in the last episode, but I realized I left out some things that um, are really common questions that come up pretty early on as people are implementing uh, the framework in their homes and, and first starting to try and experiment with that. So I want to address two of those uh, issues in particular, and they both have to do with the dinner meal and things that tend to come up. So the first one is people want to know, why won't my child eat dinner? And they kind of panic because it seems we, we put all this emphasis on that dinner meal as this really important meal that we come together and, and it tends to be the one that we plan the most carefully or we just we really put a lot of focus there and we're a bit dismayed when our kids come and they just don't want to eat anything. Um, so first of all, I want to normalize that as very, very common. Uh, and I'll give you a few reasons why that is the case. One being that kids tend to be really hungry in the afternoon. So right after school, they'll eat a snack. And I recommend having one of those scheduled after school snacks be part of the when part of the planning that you make sure you schedule um, a snack for that after school hour um, that is potentially pretty hearty, um, that they have an opportunity to really eat their fill because kids tend to be really hungry after school. And so it would make sense that they would be less hungry at dinner. Um, kids are tired at the end of the day. They've worked hard all day. They've been in school. They've played. And if they ha- especially if they have that afternoon snack that tends to be maybe a bigger snack, um, they're just not hungry at dinner. And that's okay. So don't assume that there's something really wrong with this picture if they're not eating much at dinner. And then the second thing that comes up in response to that is, well, okay, they they didn't eat at dinner, so then they're hungry at bedtime. Also really common, also really frustrating. And it's easy to see that as kind of manipulative on the part of the child. Like, okay, they didn't want to eat what I made for dinner, but they knew they would just get a snack later on, so they refused to eat anything at dinner. So it becomes this really frustrating thing. Like you made this dinner and you provided the what of feeding that what you were offering and they just didn't want to eat anything, but now they want a snack. Like, are you kidding me? Super frustrating. And it is really easy to feel like we're just kind of being taken for a ride. So I would encourage you to just ground yourself first, always. <laughs> and remember uh, coming back to that division of responsibility that it's not up to us to decide 
what or how much they're eating once we've done our jobs of the what we're offering, where and when. But it and it is legitimate if they're not eating much at dinner because they're legitimately not hungry, then they might be a little hungry before bedtime. If they're a couple hours maybe before between bedtime and dinner, um, they may be a little hungry at dinner time. And I think it's completely appropriate to offer a bedtime snack. Now, it's not a free-for-all. It's not an open kitchen. It's not a buffet. Um, you might just have a couple of options that you kind of rotate through for that bedtime snack, maybe a piece of toast and some milk or a banana and some peanut butter or a little bowl of cereal with milk, um, something like that. So not not too exciting, but just enough that they're not going to, to bed hungry. And I think that can absolutely be a really nice um, addition to the division of responsibility approach because you're still deciding when you're allowing them to eat. They're not coming in, you know, 10 minutes after dinner after they refused everything and demanding to eat something. But you don't want your child going to bed hungry. And so if you have a situation where maybe they eat a lot in the afternoon, they don't eat much at dinner, but then they're hungry at bedtime, it's completely appropriate to include that bedtime kind of rescue snack to fill their bellies before bed. Um, I also wanted to just say a quick thing about drinks. So another reason that kids might come to, to dinner not feeling hungry is if they've been drinking a lot of things through the day. Uh, I believe that the division of responsibility actually covers drinks too, um, with the exception of water. If they're thirsty between meals and snacks, they can have obviously as much water as they want. But one thing that is also fairly common is if kids are big milk drinkers and they're drinking a lot of milk throughout the day, that can really make them feel pretty full. There's a lot of nutrition in a glass of milk, and it certainly can um, really make you feel full and, and decrease that uh, motivation to, to eat much, otherwise known as hunger. <laughs> so hopefully that will help you troubleshoot um, kind of the early implementation of the division of responsibility, piggybacking on um, the last episode's conversation. Lots and lots of things will keep coming up when it comes to division of responsibility. So we'll keep talking about it. I would love to hear your questions. Send me a DM on Instagram if you have run into problems or issues with this framework in your family. And I would love to uh, address those with you. So moving on to sweets, because we didn't really delve into that uh, in the last episode. And I want to make sure to cover what I think is a really functional way to include sweets uh, in your feeding framework in your family without letting things just get chaotic and feel kind of out of control. So I want to start with a discussion of sugar itself, because this is a hot button topic uh, in our culture today. People are really worked up about sugar and how it is basically responsible for all of the world's evils. So you may notice if you follow a lot of dietitians um, that we're not super worked up about sugar like the rest of the world seems to be. And that's partly because people really seem to misunderstand what sugar is and how our body uses it. So I want to go into that just a little bit um, before we really get into the how-tos of applying this um, in your feeding environment in your home. So sugar is our body's primary source of energy for our brains. Our brains really depend on sugar or glucose for energy. Our muscles depend on glucose for energy. Glucose is the starting point for the process in which our bodies create 
energy that we can use for our activities of daily living, for our physiology, for everything that we do. Our, our bodies require energy to function, just like a car needs gas in the tank in order to go. Our bodies depend on nutritional fuel in the form of glucose. And sugar is sugar. Wherever it's coming from, if it's coming from honey or molasses or table sugar or fruit or a piece of bread, carbohydrate is basically just a lot of sugar molecules linked together. So a sugar, a sugar molecule or a glucose molecule is just six little carbons strung together. And there are a few different forms of this. I won't get too much into that. But the way that our body uses carbohydrate is it breaks up those long chains of simple sugars into single uh, sugar molecules. And then those are used to generate energy for our bodily functions. So in terms of how our bodies use that fuel, I love to ask when I'm speaking to groups, one of my favorite questions to ask is, what do you think is the most important nutrient that we consume? And we get all kinds of answers. A, a lot of people would say protein, but the kind of, it's kind of a trick question because the answer is calories. We need calories before we need anything else. We need adequate calories because calories are a unit of energy. Calories represent how much energy or fuel we are able to get from the food that we eat. And if we aren't getting enough calories, none of the rest of it matters. The total amount of energy that we need for everything that we do, not just physical activity, but all of our metabolic functions and physiology and our thinking and our brains working and our just all the things that we do, all of the energy that we require for all of it total is called our total energy expenditure. And so we need to be consuming calories um, roughly equal on average to that total energy expenditure. Now, that number is pretty darn high. And our calorie intake, a lot of people think, should match the amount of calories that we're burning in our intentional exercise, but that actually only makes up a really small percentage of our total energy expenditure. So it drives me a little bonkers to hear people talking about trying to match the calories that they burn with the amount of calories that they take in. Nobody's going to burn the same amount of calories that we consume in a day. Assuming you're eating an adequate amount of calories, you're never going to burn that many calories through physical intentional exercise alone because our bodies are way busy doing all kinds of other things that actually require more energy than our kind of daily workout if that's something that we're into. So considering how high a number that is, which for our purposes today, we'll just say is higher than you probably have been taught or assume, it's really tough to get that number of calories without a large portion of our diet coming from carbohydrate. Because our energy comes from glucose, our bodies know that's what we need. And so we've talked a lot or I've talked a lot about the human body and how brilliant it is in terms of making sure that we have what we need, no matter what our behavior is, and making adjustments accordingly. If you don't eat any carbohydrate at all, if you 
eat entirely, maybe an entirely fat and protein diet, which fat and protein and carbohydrate are the three macronutrients, meaning those are the sources of calories in our diet. Alcohol is technically also a macronutrient, but the alcohol molecule does yield calories. But we think about macronutrients as carbohydrate, protein, and fat because those are kind of all essential for nutritional well-being, which is not the case technically for alcohol. So if we have a diet that doesn't have any calorie or excuse me, any carbohydrate or at least really minimal carbohydrate, our body will take those other nutrients and turn them into sugar and turn them into glucose so that we have the glucose that we need to go through those energy generating chemical processes. So this whole idea of a low carbohydrate diet, like it's really just asking our bodies to go through all of these extra steps to generate the energy that they need. And it also deprives us of allowing those other nutrients to behave the way that they need to. Um, One of my favorite nutrition textbooks, that I have describes that I love the way that they describe a diet that's really high in protein, but inadequate in carbohydrate. Um, when the body takes that protein and turns it into to carbohydrate or to sugar for energy, the author says that the body can use protein for energy, but doing so is kind of like taking the family diamonds and sprinkling them on your breakfast cereal for texture. Because calories are the most important thing that we need, and our body's going to prioritize that need and turn whatever we're eating into glucose for energy. And so if you're eating all this protein, but it's all going toward glucose for energy, then you don't have protein for protein's sake, which is another really important nutrient for muscle repair and for any kind of regenerative cellular process. If all your protein intake or the majority of your protein intake is going towards just being converted to glucose for energy, then you're not getting the protein that you need to to serve the functions of actual protein. So all that is to say... Our bodies need sugar. Our bodies need carbohydrate. And I would love it if we could really start to reclaim that term sugar as not the root of all evil, but as just energy. It's just another source of energy. And I know that we've got a situation with sweets where a lot of people feel really chaotic and out of control around sweets. And it's I'm not minimizing that experience that people have. And we will talk about that. But I want to start this conversation with just a discussion of what we're talking about when we talk about sugar and how it functions in our body and how we need it and how we are kind of led astray by this rhetoric that sugar per se is uh, this really terrible thing that we need to break up with altogether. So let's talk about kids and sweets. Children do have a heightened interest in sugar. This has been measured in newborn babies that they prefer a sweetened formula or liquid to a less sweet formula. Our brains like it. Our bodies like it. It's pleasurable. This is our physiology. Because our bodies recognize that this is a source of energy and that we need that energy to stay alive. And and of course, we respond in a positive way to that. So that right there, I, I would love us to not pathologize this experience of liking sugar. Our bodies are designed to like sugar because we need it. 
we do have a pleasurable response to that because it's meeting a need. And I don't want us to be under the impression that that is this terrible thing that we should be afraid of. Now, that said, it is possible to develop a relationship with sweets that feels out of balance. It feels obsessive. And we see this in our kids, right? We see a really intense preoccupation with sweets. I don't want you to hear that I am denying that that is a thing that can happen. But I would say that that is the reason that we need to be working to create a functional way for our kids to relate to sweets. Many of my adult clients tell stories of sweets and, quote, junk food um, was not allowed in their house growing up. And so they never learned to relate to it in a balanced way. It was given so much power in their homes and families that they don't, they feel powerless against it, that it still has that power. And many of us as adults still have that experience. We feel like we have to either completely eliminate it and keep it away, don't bring it home from the store, just it it can't be in my house, or else I will be completely out of control and I'll eat it all at once. And it's just, it's one or the other. There's no such thing as a balanced relationship with this food that I can just kind of eat sometimes and enjoy, but it's not a big deal. And when we believe that about our own relationship with sweets, we extend that to our children. And so we have this situation where we just don't let sweet foods anywhere near our home. But as children, they have that attraction to sweet foods because of what we talked about. Our bodies know that that's quick, easy fuel for that most important nutrient that we need. And so what we see a lot is for kids who are living in those houses where sugar is severely restricted, they'll go down the street and eat an entire box of Lucky Charms. Or I've even heard of families who have a more balanced um, approach with sugar have kids from other families who don't allow it come and they'll eat sugar straight out of the sugar bowl with a spoon because our our bodies have this sense of like, okay, this is an opportunity because when our bodies are restricted from things that meet a need and feel pleasurable, the desire and the attraction and the appeal of those things just skyrockets. And so we do see children with just a really intense preoccupation with eating as much and as many sweets as they possibly can when they have the opportunity. And as our kids get older, we have less and less control over where they are and what they're doing and what they have access to. And so by the time they're grown, they're in charge of themselves and they have no skills. Their body still has that scarcity perspective and it reinforces this relationship of I am completely out of control when I allow myself to have it. So I just can't allow myself to have it. And you have this really wide swinging back and forth between feeling completely out of control with sweets and then eliminating it entirely and restricting it entirely from your diet. 
It's also when we tend to see kids hiding and hoarding and sneaking food. That's not the only reason that that can happen. That is a big reason as if it's really restricted at home. The desire for it just grows. And so we just have this situation where kids are just getting access to those foods any way that they can, whether it's at a friend's house or at school or snuck to their bedrooms and hidden under the bed. And the truth is, Our food supply contains all these foods. And I, for one, am really glad because there's such variety and there's so many wonderful flavors and eating experiences that we can enjoy. And learning to do that in a functional way is a skill. It's a skill that many adults never were offered the opportunity to develop. And that if we don't have practice and support to develop that skill as children, we are going to struggle with it as adults. So the way that I approach sweets within the Division of Responsibility framework is meant to give kids opportunities to interact with sweets within a structure that allows them to experience those things so that there is a mindset of abundance and not scarcity. But it's not just a free for all. That's a misconception um, because the same rules do apply. Adults decide the what, where, and when, and kids decide whether and how much. Um, so there are two ways that we approach this, kind of practically speaking, from day to day. So the first one is within the context of a meal. So take your dinner meal. We have the question come up a lot of, And we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, like my kid doesn't eat dinner, like they're not hungry, but they still want dessert after dinner. Like that's what you can't allow that. Right. And the solution to this, and I, this is one of my favorite features of the division of responsibility of this framework, um, because it can be such a game changer, um, is that you provide a child-sized portion, and this is an exception to the child deciding the how much they get one child-sized portion of the sweet food, a cookie or a cupcake or whatever, served right alongside their dinner. It's not contingent on anything. They don't have to eat anything first. Along with the deciding whether and how much, they can decide what order they want to eat the foods that they've chosen. And that means that they might eat their dessert first. They might eat the sweet first, and people just kind of lose their minds when they imagine this. And it can be really distressing to watch if if you have believed for such a long time that that has to come after, that has to be earned. You have to eat the healthy foods first, quote, or you have to eat the dinner first. And if you don't eat that, then you don't get to eat this other thing that you really want. And I want to quote my dear friend, Anna Lutz, a dietitian in North Carolina. You might follow her on Sunny Side Up Nutrition blog. She is a fantastic dietitian. She has a fantastic group of dietitians in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I encourage you to check out all the great stuff that she's working on. But I want to quote her because I think this is such a fantastic way to think about this. When we set up this system in which you have to eat dinner first in order to get your dessert is that we teach kids to overeat twice. And so what do I mean by that? So if we say you have to eat this and this and this, whether it's clean your plate or you have to eat three bites of this or you have to finish your vegetables, whatever, you have to eat 
some portion of this dinner meal in order to eat your dessert. Well, what do they really want? They want the dessert, right? And so they're going to do what they have to do in order to eat their dessert. So maybe they come to the table without a huge appetite because like we like we were talking about before, they had a big snack, they're tired, they've had a long day, they're just not super hungry. But that dessert, like that's the carrot at the end of the stick, right? So they'll eat what you told them they had to eat because you told them they had to eat it in order to get the dessert. So they eat more than they're hungry for just so they can get to that reward at the end. And then they're already over full because they've eaten beyond what they were hungry for. And then they eat the dessert because obviously they're not going to not eat the dessert. And so we we're teaching them to overeat twice. This is one of those ways that our best intentioned efforts to help kids manage their eating actually gets them out of their bodies and brings that decision-making process out of their bodies based on this external system of expectations and rules. So the idea of serving a single portion of a dessert alongside the meal takes care of that. It's there. They can have it now. They can have it later. They can eat half of it. They can eat all of it. They can decide. Then they can actually follow the the communication of their bodies. And if their body really is super interested in that cookie, then they can go ahead and eat it. And it's not a big deal. Nobody's going to say anything. The reason we keep it to a single portion is because we don't want to give them the opportunity to just eat as many cookies as it takes to fill them up, and then they don't have any opportunity to be exposed to some of those foods that are less accessible to them. So they eat a cookie. It's not like that's going to be all they want. Sometimes it will be. Sometimes that may be the only thing that you eat, and that's one of the more challenging scenarios within this feeding framework, and I encourage you to just stick right with it. Because again, if they get the impression that you don't care, they might learn like, hmm, that's not the most satisfying way to eat dinner. It would be better if I ate more. And they get to get that message from their bodies and not from you. But generally speaking, if there's any appetite at all, which because you've decided the when of eating and you haven't had anything to eat for at least a couple hours, they're coming to the table with some motivation to eat, some hunger. And so All the foods are on the level playing field. You haven't set up this hierarchy where you have to eat the stuff you don't like before you can eat the stuff that you do like, giving that stuff that they do like that much more power and decreasing the appeal of the unfamiliar foods or less accepted foods even more um, than it already is. And they just have a single plate of food with whatever they've decided to put on it, and they can can decide. And again, you can focus on conversing with your family and connecting with your people and having a peaceful, pleasant mealtime experience for everyone. And again, this is one of those things that is going to be harder in the beginning because kids are going to call your bluff. They're going to test you and see if you are really actually not going to say anything, and you're not going to say anything, remember. But over time, and you'll remember the first time this happens, eventually you'll have a time when it is just the most fascinating thing to watch. You'll have a a child with, you know, however many foods on their plate, including that one little cookie, and they might have a bite of the cookie. And then they'll have a little bit of chicken. And then they'll have a few bites of noodles. And then they'll have another bite of cookie. And they'll have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And at the end of the meal... 
there's still some of that cookie left on the plate because it's not this charged thing anymore. It's not this uh, reward that they're so focused on earning that they'll do anything to get to it. That's not where we want kids' minds to be in a mealtime experience. So by taking this approach, you are really just neutralizing those foods and you're not giving certain foods that much more power over other foods. This also gives kids an opportunity to relate to those sweets in a way that is not so charged and so powerful so that they are building those skills of, yes, these are foods that I really enjoy. They're really delicious, but they don't rule my life. And none of this, we're not communicating any of this with language. This is just what they're learning through this framework that we are very intentionally, but very quietly (laughs) providing. We don't have to teach these things. We don't have to teach like, oh, you should really limit your sugar and you should only eat X number of whatever per day or else like we don't we don't have to teach those things with words and in future episodes I'll talk about why that can have some unintended consequences and why it doesn't work the way that we would like it to to, te- to teach those things explicitly it also frees them to learn that there might be sweet foods that they just don't like as much when there's that scarcity perspective whatever that kind of reward food that you get at the end of the meal, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is. We're going to eat it because of this hierarchy that that has been set up. But when there is this kind of freedom within the structure that we've provided, it frees us up to notice that, gosh, I don't I don't really like this kind of cookie as much as the one we had yesterday. Like, it's okay, but I don't think I'm going to eat the whole thing. Again, not cognitive, not language, but that's just what happens when kids are tuned into their bodies and eating in a way that is intrinsically motivated for them. That kind of thing, that's what you observe. And because we don't have our agenda, remember, we're Switzerland, we're not going to cheer and celebrate when we see a kid leave part of a cookie on the table, even though we're really excited to see those skills developing. And we're really excited to see that our kids are not so obsessed with sweets as maybe they once were or as maybe we were afraid they would be. We're just we're just observing. We 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 didn't even notice. We didn't even notice what you did with that cookie. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah. I wasn't paying attention. I was just listening to you talk about your day at school today. That's the environment that we want to create so that our kids can develop these skills in a natural embodied way. So the second way that we can approach sweets within this framework is with snack time. So snack time, usually for young kids, we have two planned snacks a day, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Um, As kids get older, you might uh, drop one of those snacks, but it really is just what works for your family because you are deciding the when of eating. So within those snack times, I'll talk about the afternoon snack because we've already um, mentioned that that tends to be a really hungry time for kids that right after school hour. You're deciding the what and the where. So if you're serving something at the counter or at the table and you decide what you're offering, you're going to decide each afternoon what you're going to offer for that snack time. And sometimes you might offer veggies and ranch. And sometimes you might offer an apple and peanut butter. And sometimes you might provide cheese and crackers. And then occasionally you can decide 
that what you're offering for that snack time is a plate of cookies or some other sweet dessert type food that you know they're going to love. Maybe you made homemade chocolate chip cookies or maybe somebody had a birthday this weekend and there's birthday cake left over. And because kids get to decide the how much, the whether they're going to eat something and how much, um, they can eat their fill. If you've put out a plate of chocolate chip cookies and they can decide how many chocolate chip cookies they want to eat and they can eat their fill in that snack period during that time that you've scheduled for that snack. Now this, I can feel the anxiety creeping up as we think about just imagining that scenario in which kids are offered the opportunity to just eat their fill of cookies or some other sweet food that we're kind of afraid of. But hang with me for just a second. In this scenario, because the food that you offer is not competing with other things that are on the menu like they would be at dinner or lunch, they can just fill right up with whatever it is that you're offering. And what this does is it gives them an opportunity to A, feel really free around that food, satisfying that desire that they naturally have for foods in that category. So eliminating that scarcity perspective that there's there's enough here for me to enjoy. It's not going to be off limits. I can have as much as I want. And our brains, they just kind of go, okay, I don't have to work. I don't have to sneak. I don't have to get creative and crafty to figure out ways to have this food. I can just have as much as I want. And we've all experienced coming to a food and eating as much of it as is satisfying. And as we get full, it's less tasty. If we're embodied and if we are being guided by our bodies and not by a sense of scarcity, we get to that point where it's just not quite as pleasurable because we're get, we're reaching that point of satisfaction. And so allowing kids to have that opportunity to experience what that satisfaction feels like just in their bodies and not because they've gotten away with something because they have full permission to eat as much as they want in that snack sitting, we can let them experience what that feels like. It also allows them the opportunity to experience what too full feels like. Maybe they're so excited because your homemade chocolate chip cookies are so delicious and they eat so many of them that they have a tummy ache afterwards. As parents, we tend to be really terrified of letting that happen. And a lot of the messages that we send our kids about not eating too much sugar or limiting this or you shouldn't have this is about not letting them get to that point where they've eaten so much of some sweet thing that they don't feel well. And to that, I I love to tell parents that kids will remember the tummy ache that they got much better than the one you told them they might get. Because the, the one that they t- you told them they might get, that's about you and your agenda and trying to keep them from doing something that they really want to do. When they have that unconditional permission within that structure, that planned snack that you've provided to eat their fill and potentially not feel great afterwards, that frees their body to tell them, hey, that was too much. Next time, we don't want to have quite that much. And that's one of those ways that our body communicates with us. And so if we get out of the way, our kids' bodies will do that for them. And they can learn for themselves 
rather than being told by us when we're just, you know, they're trying to ruin their fun, what their limit is and what it feels like to go from hungry to satisfied and potentially to someplace beyond satisfied that doesn't feel good anymore. Our bodies like to feel good. It's resilient. It's a survival instinct that our bodies like pleasure and they like satisfaction and they they like to feel good, which is to say they don't like to feel bad. So if we give our kids opportunities within a structure that we so intentionally provide to have that experience, they will learn that for themselves and they will carry that information in their bodies as they grow and as they become adults. And that's skill building. Those are the skills we want them to have when they grow up and leave our families to take care of themselves. And that is the skill that so many of us as adults never had the opportunity to learn. And so we are flailing in our adult lives because we don't know how to manage those things for ourselves because we've learned that our bodies can't be trusted, that it's all about my behavior and my willpower and my choices and my body doesn't get to be a factor. This is what I'm talking about when I describe partnering with your body and letting it do what bodies do so well to support us rather than thinking that our bodies are, we have to just overcome them and resist them and manage them and conquer them. They're going to keep doing what they do. They're going to keep doing what bodies do and it will remain a battle and the harder we try, the more intense that, bo- that battle will become until we can recognize that our bodies are there to help us. Allowing your kids to come to that understanding in their bodies and that trust in their bodies is so much easier than trying to relearn that as an adult, having spent an entire childhood or an entire lifetime not being allowed to practice those skills, and learning that our bodies can't be trusted. So again, to recap, this is not unlimited access. You're not giving kids unlimited access to sweets. You're providing that very intentional structure within which they can practice those skills and they can enjoy gratifying those desires to eat really sweet, fun foods and not try to squelch that and deny that because it doesn't go away. And it just gets harder to manage as we go on. And I promise you over time, you will be amazed what you will see when they are just left to be guided by their bodies. I posted on Instagram not long ago, uh, a plate that my uh, I served my son lunch And uh, he did this very thing. I mean, and he loves sweets as much as the next child. He's seven. Loves sweets. He loves eating. He's a he has a big appetite. Um, And I put three Oreos on his plate along with a sandwich and some orange slices. And I can't remember what else. Celery. It's celery on the plate. He ate all the celery. So there was one and a half Oreos left on his plate. He ate a little bit of a sandwich, all the celery and one and a half Oreos. And when you serve a full balanced meal with a little sweet thing on the side, it is so entertaining and so fascinating to watch a child who just trusts their body and feels free to eat in a way that feels good what they will do. 
So I really encourage you to give it a try. Give it time. Give it time for this whole kind of calling your bluff and testing your limits phase to come and go and and see what they do. This process of giving kids the opportunity to make a choice and see how it feels in their body without bringing that into the cognitive realm, without trying to put language to that and explain it and teach it to them, just letting them experience that in their body is the best teaching we can do. And contrary to popular opinion, our bodies don't actually want to eat nothing but massive quantities of sweets and desserts all the time. A lot of us assume that that's what we would do if we allowed ourselves to be guided by our bodies. And we might have a period in which the pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction where we're eating more of those things than are comfortable. But when our bodies get the message, truly get the message that we have unconditional permission, our bodies will start to tell us that variety is nice and eating a lot of different foods also feels good to our bodies. Just in that way that you gave them the opportunity at those snacks where you put out a plate of cookies to learn what it feels like to go past that point of comfortable fullness. It doesn't feel good. And our bodies don't like to not feel good. So by implementing this structure and this intention in which your kids can practice those skills, you're letting them be guided by those messages from their body. They like what feels good. They don't like what doesn't feel good. And our bodies really actually do like variety and balance. And our needs fluctuate. And sometimes we'll eat more on one day and less on the next day because our we're, our bodies are always in flux. It goes back to that dynamic relationship between our very busy, very complex physiology and our environment. And we can't always predict that, which is to say when we try to manage it and control it, we're going to miss the mark. So you are giving your children an amazing gift by allowing them to experience food in this way, given this support and this structure, by letting them get to know their bodies, letting them learn in their bodies, what feels good and what doesn't feel good. And I promise you, that is our best teacher and our best way to know what our needs are and come closest to meeting those needs in a way that works for us. So to wrap this up, I want to acknowledge that this conversation might bring up a lot of things for you. Um, A lot of us have very complicated and fraught relationships with food and especially with those really hyper palatable foods, sweet foods and and things that feel dangerous to us. A lot of us have difficult histories and childhoods where we learned certain things about those foods and about ourselves and about our bodies that um, weren't helpful for us. Uh, establishing a healthy relationship with those foods in our bodies as adults. I just want to say that I see you and I validate that. And I encourage you to have compassion and grace for yourself and to consider that your body is actually a good body and that it wants the best for you and that it's working hard all the time, even in the ways that have felt really frustrating to you to make sure that you're okay and to care for you the best way that it possibly can. 
unlearning the things that we've learned that aren't helpful is a long process and it's messy. And sometimes it feels like two steps forward and three steps back. But I truly believe that learning to feed your family well is a tool for healing yourself. And I'm confident that if you implement some of these shifts that we're talking about and really trust your kids and their bodies, that you will start to see little pieces of evidence that bodies can be trusted and that that applies to you too. And on that note, in the next episode, we are going to talk about the division of responsibility for adults, which is kind of funny to think about, but I really love thinking about how all of these relationships are interconnected and related to one another. We've mentioned before that your relationship with your kids Uh, in a lot of ways mirrors your relationship with your body and that we can learn a lot about our relationship with our body by watching and feeding our kids. And I want to dive in a little deeper about how we can think about the way that we feed ourselves using that model that we've been talking about for the feeding environment with our children. So I'm really excited to talk about that with you and I hope you'll join me then. Now that you're here, I hope you won't be a stranger. Please come connect with me on Instagram at katzavrd or visit kznutrition.com for more resources. If you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend or on your social media. You can review the show at Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you listen. And don't forget to hit subscribe. That helps me connect with more of you and bring more beautiful humans into this community. Thanks for being here. See you soon.